You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So for the next three weeks, what we are going to do, we are going to look at each paragraph in detail. We're going to do this uh, because we always like to be, we want our authority to be God's Word. Meaning what we say on a Sunday morning, our main idea, we want that to be straight from Scripture. We don't want to come up with an idea and go see, well, what could we find? And so we're going to be spending the next three weeks in the smallest book of the Bible. So by the end of three weeks, in fact, it'll be very different. Usually we take a book and we kind of walk through it section by section. But today I'm going to preach through the book of 3 John. Next week, preach through the whole book of 3 John. And then the third week, preach through the whole book of John. So you should know very much a lot more detail about the book of 3 John. So please turn in your Bibles. If you uh, use your smartphone or a tablet, we invite you to go to the YouVersion app. We uh, post our sermon notes there. You can follow along with us uh, in the YouVersion app if you do use that. So the book of 3 John, smallest book of the Bible, I think it's around 300 words, 15 verses is all that it is. So I'd love to read this for us this morning, then we will walk through uh, this great little compact book. So beginning of verse 1, this is how the word of the Lord reads. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out uh, for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but uh, Diotrephus, who thinks that he's put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what, is do- what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and that you know that our testimony is true. And I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We acknowledge that your word 
that we read today is given straight from you. That every word of the scripture has been breathed out by you and it is good and is profitable for our, our teaching and our correction and our rebuke. So Father, we ask that we would be able to hear you clearly this morning through your truth. That we'd have eyes to hear and, and hearts that are open to your truth. The things that we hear today, may we not only believe them, but may we live them. We ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus, that we worship this morning, that we give him worthy. And by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. So this morning, I want us to focus on the very first paragraph of our, our, our vision statement of Bethel Bible Church. We began last week, but this is what the vision of Bethel Bible Church begins with. First paragraph says, by God's grace and for his glory, Bethel believes that God has called Bethel Bible Church to become a community of several thousand members devoted to worshiping Him, becoming Christ-like disciples, affecting the world through outreach. And we summarize this first paragraph by the two simple words of growing communities. So if somebody comes up to us, I know there is no way you would probably memorize the very first paragraph, but we can all remember we're about growing communities. We're not about just drawing crowds, but we want to create opportunities for people to build relationships so that we become more Christ-like in our walk, and that through that, we then begin to influence the worlds that we live in. So to do this this morning, I want to show you a picture of something strange that happened in White House this week. We experienced this really strange weather event. I was sitting in the office, I believe it was Tuesday afternoon, and all of a sudden the doors started rattling, and there was this kind of just burst of wind that came. It brought a, an extreme rain shower of like 33 seconds. Temperature dropped like 15 degrees, and then in half that time the humidity rose. It was so strange. But the, coming through White House, we even made the news that there was this tree that fell over, and you can see this man standing by this tree. Uh, they tell me this man is not Steve Hudson, but he's six foot six is what they tell me, and look at that tree. Now, there's another picture, I think it's the one before that, where he's standing, and this is what I, I first saw, and I thought, how in the world could that have boast of wind? Could it have blown over that massive tree? Now, go back. And notice that you notice something about the bottom side of this tree. What you see, why this tree was uh, laying over on its side, that this tree has absolutely no roots. No matter how tall a tree might be, it will fall if any wind hits it. If it does not have this established root system, and it's just as flat as could be as it seems. So this morning, we're going to walk through this small book of 3 John, and we want to see it in its context, and that is what we will do. And then I want us to see why John was writing, what was he trying to say. And along the way, I want to pull out just a few observations that, that I noticed about this book. And then at the end, I want us to look at some very practical implications and ideas of the importance of what we call growing communities. And we will connect this idea of growing communities to roots of a tree. Because we are not meant to stand alone. In fact, we cannot stand alone. So, the book of 3 John, this is how this book is broken down. It's a short book that begins in the first verse with a greeting. 
Many letters that we read, it has this. And then you will see that he's going to focus on three major people. Next verses 2 through 8, we will see the, the, uh, the men named Gaius, or Gaius as many would say. And they're going to talk favorably about this man. But then we are going to see Diotrephus. This man that is actually condemned for his actions in verses 9 through 11. And then we'll have this recommendation of Demetrius in, in one verse. They talk about this man. And then John will conclude with the last three ber- verses with a farewell. So our author John, he is one of the twelve apostles. In fact, he was one of the three that were closest to Jesus. We're not exactly sure which church John was writing to. But we will gain so much insight into this church by reading through this third letter in a series. So let's begin going back to our greeting in verse 1. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So our first person is this man named Gaius. And we don't know much about this man. We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he has any children. We don't know what he did to support himself or his family. But we know from this is that John loved this man very much. But notice what he says. I wonder what John means when he says, I love him in truth. So what John is expressing here is that he's expressing something that all of us should have. And we are talking about this idea of community this morning, and it's been overwhelming of the conversations that I've had with people, them not knowing what we're going to talk about. Even in our prayer time this morning, not knowing that I was going to be sharing this about all the conversations about community. And what John is expressing is this idea that we should all share. He's talking about a special bond that should be there between Christians. Of all your relationships that you are in and that you function in, you might be married and you're in a husband and wife relationship. You're in a co-working relationship that you have co-workers that you work with. You have brothers and sisters that you're ready for school to start so you don't have to spend every waking minute of the day with them. But we have all these relationships, but of all of them, there's only one that will last that we will take into eternity. I will not take as much as I would love to. I do not get to take my idea and our creation of marriage between Marlon and I into eternity. It doesn't get to doesn't get to transfer over. I'm a husband, I'm a father. Those don't get to transfer over. But there is a bond that is deeper that does get to transfer that I get to take with me into eternity and that is that I get to go into eternity as brothers You get to go in as sisters in Christ with other people. And that is the only bond that believers have that we get to carry into eternity. And so John is talking about is that there should be this bond that we have, that we should enjoy being together. We should come in a common place. The relationships are built, and that is a relationship that we get to take with us into eternity. And he's talking about this special bond that holds believers together. And it's based around, and it's grounded in one thing, that they believe the same thing. That's why we go through the membership process, and we want to make sure that we are in agreement on the essentials of the doctrine so that we can have this Christian fellowship. So let's get to know Gaius a little bit more. Look at verse 2. He calls him beloved again. 
I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, what an unusual phrase in verse 2. John says that he prays for his beloved brother in Christ. He prays that all may go well with him. And then that he experiences good health. And man, those should be things that resonate with us. Those should be things that we go, yes, I've done that. I have thought about a brother or sister in Christ. And I've been concerned about them. I've prayed for their health. We did that this morning. Praying for people that need some healing. Or pray for people that are going in to some difficult times. But notice what he says. He doesn't just pray for his physical health. He prays that his Physical health matches his spiritual health. And we often don't think of things that way, do we? I mean, I believe we are really good at looking after the physical health of people and friends and neighbors. You might bring somebody soup that is under the weather. You might run to the pharmacy to pick up some meds for somebody that is sick. You might even watch someone's children so they can get some rest, so that they can recover. But do we show the same concern, and do we go to the same lengths to care for someone's spiritual health? I mean, we are to care about people's physical health. And he is saying, I pray that your physical health matches your spiritual health. And what we see about John is that he was more aware of Gaius' spiritual health than he was even his physical. He knew more about where he was spiritually. And he says, I I pray that your physical health begins to match that. Now notice what he says in verses 3 through 8. And let's see why that is. Why does he know more about his spiritual health than he does his physical? It says, for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You see, Gaius was a leader in this church that John is writing to. And John sees himself as an elder, and he is an overseer. And so he was probably a mentor, a spiritual father to Gaius. So in the mid to late first century, what we see happening is that missionaries were leaving Jerusalem and they were traveling all throughout Asia Minor, all the way over into Europe. And preachers and missionaries would travel from city to city. And all they would do, they would go from city to city. And when they would come to a city, they would look for a group of believers to help care for them, to give them a place to rest, to provide some food. In fact, they would even provide food just for the next leg of the journey to where they would get to the next spot. And they were dependent upon wherever city they were, they were dependent upon believers taking them in and caring for them and then sending them on to their next spot. They would come to this town, they would look for a place to rest and for some food, 
And Gaius was a person that invited these men into his home and he took care of their needs. We're going to talk more about that in uh, the next two weeks about what it means to live generously. And, and, and Gaius was one of these men. But Gaius was a man that sacrificed in order to take care of other people. In a word of, uh, of his generosity, what happened, these men would travel and then they came back to Jerusalem and they would tell the church, you're not going to believe we went into this city and if you ever find yourself there, look for Gaius. Look for him. He will take care of you. And the word of this man's generosity was spreading throughout the area. And that is why when he looks and he sees this man, he knew so much about his spiritual health because he knew a man that would do that. There is something in him that is driving and that is causing him to reach out and care for these believers. But not everybody was that welcoming. Not everybody was, was like Gaius in that they would open up their home. Look at this next man. Beginning in verse 9 through 11. I've written something to the church. But when we come up, this, this man, uh, Diotrephus. Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first. Underline that. Does not acknowledge our authority. Underline that. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Talking wicked nonsense against us. Another one to underline. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. Underline. And he stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Underline. Behold, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. And this is how John knows of the spiritual health of Gaius. You know, Scripture does some things for us. It does many things for us. He gives us individuals to look to and to model our lives after. But it also gives us people as to be a warning to us that, no, stay away from that. And Diotrephus is one of those that are meant to be a warning to us. Diotrephus was a man probably from the same church. But instead of being known as uh, from his love and his generosity to others, just let me recap and, and get a picture of this man. He likes, to put others, he likes to put himself first. He refuses to acknowledge the authority of the apostles and the leaders. John had written other letters that Diotrephus had hidden from the church. If a traveling missionary or preacher came in, he would refuse and lock the door and not let these men in. And then he even goes far enough to say, hey, if I find out that you are caring for one of these traveling missionaries, if a preacher comes to your home and I find out you have helped them, he would cast them out of the church. And so John is giving us these two major contrasts between the lives of Gaius and Diotrephus. One we should imitate and be followed, and the other is meant to be a warning of how not to act and not to respond. You know, we should be reminded of so many things about these two men. One of the things that came to my mind this week, just making myself a note, thinking about this personally, is that my conduct towards other people, whether it's with people who are in authority over us, or people that are even in need, it reflects our relationship with God the Father. When you walk with Christ... If you're looking at Scripture as your guide and your authority, 
if we're often reflecting upon the grace of God and what He has done for us, it should be evidenced in how we interact and respond to other people, people that have authority over us and people that even come to us looking and that are in need. And that should be reflected in how we respond to them. But Diotrephus is driven by something. He's driven by pride. He's driven by greed because he doesn't want to, to let his resources go. And he's driven by power. He was even willing to hide things from the church. And he's so driven by pride and greed and power. But I think John notices something about Diotrephus. And he's meant to, to draw our attention to it. I believe Diotrephus is mentioned here because John knew that at one time that was him. I mean, just think back to Matthew chapter 18. I mean, John was one of the men and the disciples that were following Jesus. He was a fisherman. Jesus says, put down that net and come follow me, and I'll teach you how to become fishers of men. And John dropped his net and began following Jesus. But do you remember what happened in Matthew 18, the scene that we see the disciples are arguing? You remember what they're arguing about? They're arguing among themselves, about who is the greatest. Two chapters later, we see John's mother going to Jesus, saying, would you make John and James a place of honor? Would you let them sit on your right and your left hand? And I believe John hears about Diotrephus, and he sees who he previously was. He relates to him. He's realizing that it is this man that was driven by selfishness and pride and power. And I believe John remembers back that that was him. That was his priority. That's what he was after. And he would do anything to get it. And all of a sudden his life changed. So maybe you find yourself, at least I know I do at times, relating to Diotrephus. Diotrephus was driven by self and he refused to come under the, the shadow of the cross. This is such a great reminder for us about every one of us dying to ourselves. And it is a daily battle. So this week I came across a great word picture of this idea that I must always be dying to those things of self. And the author says this, The last enemy of the believer to be destroyed is self. It dies hard. And it will make any agreement if it is just allowed to live. An uncrucified self will permit the believer to do anything, give anything, sacrifice anything, go anywhere, suffer anything, gain any reputation, afflict soul and body to any degree, if only it can live. It will agree to live in any hole, in any slum, if its life can be spared. We must ask ourselves, what part of my life have I refused to allow Jesus to lay the cross over? What part of my life am I refusing to be crucified and to given over to Christ? Because Diotrephus is one of those that refused to lay his pride, his power, everything he was chasing about himself, he refused to lay that down. He refused to allow it to come under the shadow of the cross. But notice the contrast. Notice the last person that we see in John mentioning here. It's in one verse, but we see someone that has died to self. Demetrius. 
He says, has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius was a man very different from Diotrephus. Demetrius has a testimony that says that everyone said was good. But I need you to notice what made his testimony good. What made the evidence of his life good. It's not because one person said he was good. It's not because another person said he is good. Because everybody has a different standard of what is good. But he says that his testimony was good from everyone and from the truth itself. Meaning, Demetrius was someone whose life followed the truth. You know what? We like the Bible. We would even probably say that we love the Bible. We profess that the Bible is God's Word. It's inspired. It's His inerrant Word. And we agree that we should read it and we should study it. We're going to even make some offerings in the next few weeks. But I pray that we never get to the point that we read it, we study it, that we refuse to allow it to be the absolute and final standard of our lives. You know what? You can get really close to it. Man, you could even say you love it. But I'm concerned that we can come under and we can be around God's Word and we can still refuse to allow it to be the thing that guides our life. Because here's how Demetrius came to God's word. He came to God's word and he would say, Lord, change me. And when he did, his life began to change and I believe it began to look differently. He would make decisions based on what God's word said regardless of what other people thought. Because Demetrius was not a man that lived to get other people's approval. What he did though, he began to look at God's word And he lived to honor God through his obedience. And then what happens is people begin to notice. And people then begin to approve. And we need to make sure that we don't reverse that process and try to live to get noticed or for other people's approval. We need to live to impress and put our hope in what God has said that we should do. And live to honor him. And then let people notice it. But we must make sure that we do not get that process Backwards. We're to live lives that honor God and then allow that to influence people. Now, notice the last three verses. Notice the conclusion. He says, But I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write it in pen and ink. I'd hope to see you soon and that we could sit down face to face. In fact, in the Greek, it says mouth to mouth. A little strange for our context, but he wants to be close to them. He wants to be in their presence. He wants them to hear the words straight from his mouth. And he says, peace be to you. The friends, the friends here, they greet you. Greet the friends that would come into your city, each by name. You know, John is looking forward to the day that he would come and get to visit the people that he had heard so much about. He wants to come and sit and be among them and to hear the stories of what God is doing and how the gospel is changing their life. And he sees this church, and he knows it's not a perfect church. 
He knows there are people who still need to come under the shadow of the cross. And he prays for peace. He prays for a reconciliation that they would have between God and even each other. Man, what a great book with so many reminders and things that we should think about and to take to heart. And even over the next two weeks, we're going to walk through this same story. But I want to kind of direct our last few thoughts, looking at this book in context, and hopefully you've got a, a big picture of what John was seeing and what he was hearing and what he was trying to convey. He was seeing three different people seeing how God was doing things, and he's given us some good examples and some that we should hold up as warnings. But I want to close with just some principles. As we think through who is Bethlehem, what are we trying to accomplish? We believe that God has called us to be a group of people by God's grace and for his glory that Bethel believes that God has called us to become a community of several thousand members worshiping Him, becoming Christ-like disciples and affecting the world through outreach. And we say growing communities. Our goal is that we would grow communities of, of Christ-like disciples that are then, then influencing the world. You know what? That's why we don't have a lot of things that we just are asking you to come to. We want you to come and to be a part of God's people and to be encouraged and to be challenged. And then wherever you are, live out that truth. But here are two things I've noticed. First, John knew these three men well. He was able to describe who they are and to give us an accurate picture of their character. So I ask you, are there some people close enough to you that they could give an accurate picture of your life? You know, we can fool a lot of people. You can fool me, you know, if we don't know each other well. But do you have some people in your life that are close enough to you that they could give an accurate picture of where you are? And listen, your picture will not be flawless. It will not be perfect. But if we are to grow into Christ-like disciples, we need people in our lives. You and I cannot stand alone. And if you're really serious, man, you would say, you know what, God? I really want to become more like Christ. I really want my life to look different. Here's something that you could do, and I'll tell you, it'll be scary. Go to somebody you trust. Go to somebody that you know loves you and has your best interests in mind and ask them this. Ask them to tell you prayerfully what area of my life you think still needs to come under the shadow of the cross and needs to be in more line with the scripture? Man, do you have somebody that you would trust that you could honestly ask that question and that, that way they could give you feedback in love and in truth? Do you have someone in your life? Because John knew these men well. Are there people that know you well? And if not, let them in. Seek them out. The second thing I want you to notice about this idea of community is that John actually gives us a variety of relationships. John identifies himself as an, an elder or an overseer. And next week, I hope you're going to be here because, uh, Lord willing, we're going to uh, install our new deacons and elders. And an elder is an overseer. And John wanted to care for the spiritual health of other people. 
In fact, in verse 4, John calls them his children. But in some way, that is how we are to view. We are to have some people. We are to care about their spiritual life. And John was an overseer. He saw himself as a spiritual father. And it says, of all the things that bring him joy, to see his spiritual children walking in the truth was by far the greatest. And so John was a spiritual father. He was a mentor to other people. And man, just know there is no greater joy than being that in someone's life. But John also gives us a picture of when these missionaries would come and it calls them co-workers, calls them peers that they are to be in work of the truth with. In the same way, he closes up his letter by calling them friends. So community involves a variety of relationships. You need three kind of people in your life. And I need these three people in my life too. Because you are not meant to stand alone. In fact, you cannot stand alone. So one, you need a coworker or a friend. You need somebody that is walking alongside you. You need somebody that's there that you can call when things go bad. And you need a friend. You need a co-worker, a co-laborer, a friend in your life, and you need to be that to someone else. But also, you need a John. You need someone in your life to ask you hard questions, to to challenge you. You need someone to spur you on. You need a spiritual father, a mentor in your life. You need a John. And if you don't have it, seek it out. And the third one that we see in community is a child. You need someone that you are now bringing along. And listen, it doesn't mean that you get to the top of the mountain and then you get to turn around and find someone to bring up the mountain. No, no matter where you are, you need a John and you need a child. You need somebody that is leading you, that is caring for your spiritual health, and then you need to find somebody that you are also doing that with. And John promises there is no greater joy than you watching that child and you being a part of their life and watching them walk in the truth. So examples of community around here. Uh, We call them small groups, and that is an umbrella for a lot of things. That's women's Bible studies. That's a place for you to be a John and uh, I guess a Johnus and uh, for you to have a child. But also, it's a, a chance for small groups to happen in life groups. It's a chance for you to be a John in a spiritual way. And you're not perfect. We're not looking for that. But we're looking for people that will look over the spiritual health of others. And you know what? In all of those contexts, and you find somebody that you could lead along to. You find them in Bible studies. You find them in fellowship times, coming together and being a part of a group of believers because you are not meant to stand alone and you cannot stand alone. You need community. So I want to close with, I begin with a picture of that tree. I want to close with a different word picture. You know, I showed you that big tree that fell here in White House so this last week that Man, you could see on the other side there was just something wrong. These roots were not deep. They seemed to go out, but they just kind of stopped, and this tree toppled over. But have you ever seen a giant redwood, one of those huge sequoias? So here's a picture. I mean, these things are massive. 
these trees, they've been told they grow in the northern California coast, and some are over 300 feet tall. And it says that sometimes their branches can grow to be five to eight feet in diameter. And these trees are big enough to even drive cars through at times. Massive, massive trees. But there's something unusual about these huge redwood trees that can tower hundreds of feet in the air and withstand winds that come roaring off the ocean and storms that come from the other side coming over the mountains. And what is unusual is that the roots are not deep. A root of a redwood sequoia tree is not known for deep, deep roots that grow deeper and deeper and deeper that hold them upright. In fact, the roots are very shallow in comparison to their height. So what is it? What is it that causes these massive trees to stand at the height that they do? What causes these trees to stand is that the roots grow together with other redwood trees. In fact, a redwood tree, it can't stand alone. When that tree toppled over over on 346, its roots weren't very deep. And what happened, there were no other trees around it for it to anchor to. So you see, a redwood tree cannot stand alone. It needs the support of the other trees to drive its roots in, that they are holding it secure to the ground for when the winds and the storms come, that they are anchored to the ground. And you can't stand alone either. You need biblical community. Because if you are going to become a Christ-like disciple that influences the world around them, you need community. Father, we come before you, thanking you once again for your word that is there for our teaching, for our correction. Father, your truth comes to us and it should encourage us and it should comfort us, but it should also challenge us. And Father, I know for many of us, community makes us very uncomfortable makes us think of things that we might have to share. It makes us uncomfortable letting people in our lives. And it's even scary to think, who, who would I ever in, in invest in? Because we think we don't have much to offer. So, Father, I want to be praying for community here. I want to be praying for all of us to step out of our comfort zones and for all of us to realize that we need Biblical community. We need people in our lives that will challenge us, will encourage us, that will be spiritual mentors. We need peers that will walk alongside us. And then we also need to be looking for people that we can now reach down and to help. Because, Father, we cannot and we are not meant to stand alone. We need community. We need the roots of our lives connected to other people. So, Father, please, we ask that you would build it. It is in your son's name that we do all of this. And we admit that we can only do it by you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.